Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, very happy to be joined today by Matt Eddy, our executive editor and longest tenured member of the editorial staff here at BA. Thanks for having me, Kyle. It's good to be here. Absolutely. We love having you on when we can get you. Matt's obviously a very busy man making the magazine happen, but uh, we appreciate his insights as much as anyone else is on the staff. Matt, part of the reason I wanted to bring you on today is we are now just under 50 games into the Major League season. We've started to see some players kind of take a next step. We have guys who are top prospects coming up, they get to the majors, and almost from day one they, they make an impact that seems like and never stop hitting. Chris Bryant, Corey Seager, Ronald Acuna, guys right out of the gate that just are impact players. But there's also guys who it takes a little bit longer. We're talking year three, year four in some cases before we really start to see everything kind of come together. And I wanted to play a little bit of a game with you, believe it or not where we look at some players who were one-time top prospects at various points, struggled for whatever reason over the last two, three years, and now in the early going of this season, at least on paper, look like they've started to put it together. The guy at the top of this list is Byron Buxton. Uh, He's been one of the most talked about young players in baseball for years because the tools are so tantalizing. Does some incredible things in center field. He can win games with his legs on the base paths. His arm in center is ridiculous. But he's struggled to hit uh, coming into this year over more than a thousand career plate appearances. 230 average, 285 on base, 387 slug, 32% career K rate. This was a well below average hitter. Some of it was injury inflicted, but on the whole, it had not been pretty. This year, he's exploded. Everything is up, every slash line category, every counting numbers category. It's been a huge leap forward, it appears, through these first 50 some odd games. I want to ask you, is this the Byron Buxton breakout that we have been waiting for? Uh, I would say yes, with reservation. I mean, I think there is there are very promising signs with his batted ball data. Uh, exit velocity is up. Uh, his sprint speed is always elite. Uh, so the power and speed are always going to be intriguing and will earn him playing time. Um, I think what we're seeing now is he's making the most of his batted ball outcomes which is reflected in his doubles and triples in particular. Our, our totals are very high, you know, a credit to his power and speed. One of the things with me and those who have chatted with me in the past have known that one of my go-to phrases when people have asked me about Byron Buxton is, I just have never believed in the swing. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that for me was, you know, a lot's been written about his leg kick, kind of his load and his hand separation, and that was all part of it. But for me... The two things that I saw a lot that concerned me, and the caveat here is I only saw him as a big leaguer. I never saw him as, the, as a prospect. But just since he came up to Minnesota, at times the swing was way out around the ball. And at other times it was almost segmented. Now, not consistently, but you'd see it at times. And as a res- again, it was not only was there a lot of swing and miss there, it was poor quality contact. Uh, you look at the average exit velocities, it was 85 miles an hour in his quote-unquote breakout year in 2017. That was 384th in the majors. 2018 last year, again, injuries are a part of that, but his average exit velocity was actually up from the year before. Uh, he finished around the same rate. I mean, this was a guy who out of five, 600 qualified major leaguers was in the bottom half to bottom third in just how hard he was hitting the ball. It was, it was bad swings and a lot of swings and misses. And it was just something that 
was difficult for me to see that translate to success the way his swing was currently constructed. Watching a good chunk of him this year, the thing that has stood out to me most, and again, a lot of people are focusing on the leg kick, but the actual swing path, he is staying inside the ball so, 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 so much better. It's shorter to the ball, it's more direct to the baseball, and on top of that, we're also seeing him just, even just watching, uh, there's a series against the Angels, just better takes. We see him strikeout rate come down from 32% to 23%. We mentioned the exit velocity is way up to 92 miles an hour from his 85 range a few years ago. Again, it's better swings, it's less chasing, and we're seeing everything kind of come together. I am going to say I believe, but again, I have the reservation with you, is I believe as long as he maintains this swing and this yeah. approach. And, and we, to be fair, we have seen Buxton hit effectively for a month at a time, which is what we're looking at right now. And that's and, why and I want this reservation. And I want to see him, I want to see the Twins have confidence to move him up in the order. Because right now he bats consistently at the bottom, in the bottom third. And to me, that kind of speed, I don't want to say it's wasted, but it would be better utilized at the top of the lineup when he's scoring on the two, three, four hitters, extra base hits. Agreed. Again, as you mentioned, we talked about that 2017. If you look at it, it wasn't really a breakout year. It was a breakout two months or so at the end of the season where everything just really clicked for him, two, three months. The first half of the year was, was pretty horrendous. So you're right. That's where my reservation is as well. But I am erring on the side of I believe because the swing is just so much better and so much more effective. And the numbers reflect that. Someone else who was very highly rated as a prospect was Yohan Moncada. as our minor league player of the year in 2016. Very rocky start to his pro career. Uh, swing and miss was the biggest thing. Uh, striking out over a third of his at-bats. Um, he showed some ability to hit the ball hard. He just didn't hit it very often. <laughs> Which is still true this year. And, and that's, again, so it leads into, you look at the surface level numbers. Look, batting average is up over his career mark by about 50 points. On base is up by about 30 points. The slug is up 130 points. Uh, we've seen the exit velocity steadily creep up. It's a career high this year. How much do you believe in the Yohan Moncada breakout? I would say more so than Buxton a little bit just because he's more, more of a focal point for the White Sox than Buxton is for the Twins. And perhaps lessening his defensive demands has helped a little bit. Moving into third base is probably a more natural fit for him because I know there were whispers of even center field when he was a prospect. You know, infield was no guarantee. And you, you mentioned the metrics. They're all up. You know, his performance on contact is up. His performance against right-handers is up. So I think there's a lot of encouraging things. This is someone that has long projected to be an impact hitter. I think back to Buxton, and you can speak to this more than I can because you were here when it happened, but there was an expectation Buxton would hit, but mm-hmm. his the main drivers of the excitement around him were his legs, was his defense, was his arm, all the things he could do in addition to having the bat. Where Moncada, there was no question people saw like a five-tool ability there, but mm-hmm. it did seem to be a little more offensively driven than maybe supplementary tools driven. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Buxton, given the, the plate discipline Buxton showed in the low minors and the fact that he could throw, which is rare for these, these five-tool types, that made him stand out, yeah. The biggest one of all that I think is getting enough attention, but I want to highlight him a little more, is Joey Gallo. Uh, we talked about when we, you and I did the National League preview podcast this year, you made a comment that when we do preseason prediction podcasts, we're going to say something that six months from now looks really, really, really dumb. 
Well, I'm in the early lead for that because on the American League preview podcast with JJ, I said I did not believe Joey Gallo was someone you could build with moving forward based on what he had shown the last two years, that he might be a player you have when you're going through the ugly rebuilding years, and then as soon as you get good, you move on to someone better. Well, I said that, and since then, Joey Gallo has been absolutely on a tear this year and turned himself into not only a type of player you can build with, but someone who's going to get some MVP votes. Gallo's always had enormous power. He's shown the ability to take a walk. What we've seen this year is walking more, he's swinging less. Now, he's still striking out about the same rate, but he's swinging less. He's generally just chasing outside the zone a lot less. Now, I'll dig into that in a second. But Joey Gallo as a, not just a, a Adam Dunnish type hitter, but as an MVP caliber hitter hitting, <laughs> you know, pushing 280 at the moment this podcast is being recorded. Do you believe in Joey Gallo? I do for the type of hitter he is. Like I was, I was telling you earlier, there are three batters in the major leagues this year with average fly ball exit velocities of 100 miles per hour or greater. Gallo is one. He's the leader. Like it's like 103, as I recall. Uh, followed by uh, Gary Sanchez and Jason Castro. Which of these is not like the other? <laughs> then Aaron Judge is like a tick behind. So, and, um, But yeah, to me, the 80 power plays even with the mitigating factors Gallo showed in the past. I just think he's gone from like a six-hitter type to now more of a traditional three- or four-type hitter. The thing with Joey Gallo that kind of held him back in a lot of ways. And people talk about, oh, you know, they're shifting him. He's just put a butt down to the left side or just shoot the ball the other way. That's not what the criticism in my mind was of him. The criticism was for all his strength, for all his power, for all his ability, he was chasing at so many bad pitches Hmm. that he could not do anything with that all the positives really got outweighed. If you looked at him last year, there was the 206 batting average, which on the 2080 scouting skill is a 20 grade hitter. But even with all the walks he was drawing, his on-base percentage was 312. That was below the league average at a time when a lot of guys on the around the league, you know, on-base percentages are not as high as they used to be even with some of the increase in walks. This was a well below average hitter from a batting average perspective, a below average offensive performer from an on-base percentage. And for all his raw power, it was a sub 500 slugging percentage. And a big part of that was, while yes, he could hit some titanic home runs, and he did get to 40 bombs last year, the number of empty at-bats just from swinging at bad pitches he couldn't do anything with, it was just not productive on the whole. And you go back and look at it, for all the raw power he had, his hard hit percentage last year, it was fine. It wasn't anywhere near elite. It was less than 50%. It was among players with uh, about with uh, at least 25 batted ball events. He was 24th, 25th. Again, fine, good. He wasn't at the top of the list. He wasn't near the top of the list. And a part of that was, while he crushed the balls he got, there were a lot of balls he couldn't do anything with, was swinging at them, and was either missing them or not hitting them that hard. The biggest key to me is he stopped chasing. Uh, his out of zone chase percentage was about 32% each of the last two years. Hmm. This year it's down to 23%. That to me is the key. All the pitcher's pitches he used to swing at and couldn't do anything with, he's taken those down substantially. Now he's letting them go by. The walk rate is up, the K rate is down slightly, the swing percentage is down. 
And now when he does swing, he's swinging at a lot better pitches, the ones he can drive. As such, his hard hit percentage is way up by about 11%. His exit velocity is up three or four miles an hour. This is the best Joey Gallo we've seen by far. And the improvements he's made to his approach are tangible. They're visible when you just watch it. And you can see it about eight different ways when you analyze statistically. I just read off a bunch of them that kind of support what we see. With Joey Gallo, I'm kind of in the Byron Buxton vein of this has been great. I want to see him do it over more than 40 to 50 games. Because we see all the time approaches and guys can waver, go back and forth. And maybe an injury happens and something gets off. I'm inclined to believe in both of them because they're tremendously gifted. And look, these are two of the most exciting players in baseball when they're right. For just the sheer enjoyment of the game and appreciation of athletic greatness, I hope they can maintain this. But I think that with these two in particular, I just want to see it maintained over a larger sample size before I state definitively, yes, I believe. That is the link between Buxton, Moncada, and Gallo. It's always going to be about what they do on contact because the strikeouts are always going to be there. You know, well, and that's They're never going to be contact hitters. And, and Gallo, look, his strikeout rate is still hovering that 35% range. Moncada's is down to 27. Buxton's the one that interests me because it's down to 23. You're right. He was a swing and miss guy. There was going to be swing and miss. He's got it down to 23. And again, I think a lot is just it's a better swing. If he can maintain that, I think his profile changes a little bit. And look, he's he's a good player, even if that number is a little bit higher. If he can keep it that low, mm-hmm. it's going to make him that much better. We've talked about three hitters. There's a pitcher who also fits this group of guys who were at some point or another seen as a, a top 50 prospect in the game, one of the top of their position groups, Lucas Giolito. Last year... He had the highest ERA among qualified starters in the major leagues. This year he's come out. ERA has been a lot better. Really, everything's been a lot better. The strikeout rate's moved in the right direction. The walk rate has moved in the right direction. Uh, There's very tangible signs of improvement we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, James Fegan over at The Athletic wrote a good article the other day just talking about some of the offseason changes he made, going back and working with his high school pitching coach, who uh, is now a coach in pro ball, Ethan Katz, who... Is a name I've heard a lot in, in pro ball. He was credited with helping Tygo Vieira and the Mariners organization find some control. Um, I think that that's a, a name to watch among pitching coaches. But with the help of Ethan Katz, it looks like Giolito is on the right track. It's only been eight starts. We've seen a lot of pitchers have good six, seven, eight start stretches before, and then the league catches up to them. How much do you believe in Lucas Giolito right now, someone who's finally figured it out? Um, yeah, in anticipation of this, I looked at the some of the pitch effects numbers for Giolito. Uh, the velocity being up is the biggest marker. It's up. The the average fastball velocity is up between one and two miles per hour. Uh, a good sign, obviously. His other markers are going in the right direction, but are not improved dramatically. So he's he's hovering around like uh, the average for a lot of these. So I, th- I think the potential for number three, number four type starter if he maintains this, is um, possible. The biggest thing for Lucas Giolito, when I talked to uh, Steve McCaddy, who was his pitching coach at Charlotte, I did this article two years ago, and this was when Giolito had become that guy who sits 90-94. Even with his velocity increase this year, his average fastball velocity is around 93.5. 
he was no longer the guy who threw 100. It was 90-94. And at the time, they talked a lot about command, 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 command. That mm-hmm. was the biggest thing for him. And that's true of all pitchers to a degree, but especially for Lucas Giolito at that point in his career. We have seen him have better control this year. Um, there have been some interesting advances in kind of measuring command uh, with you know numerically measuring it. And by some of those metrics, Giolito is still below average. So for me, it's just going to be about, okay. And I will say this. The velocity increase makes an enormous difference. He's throwing his fastball harder. He's throwing his fastball more often. And he's throwing it for strikes more. It's not only is it just harder. Mm-hmm. It's, he's throwing it over the plate more, which also makes a big difference. And with that, his changeup, which actually was an effective pitch last year, has become even more effective. And the fastball changeup, it's all related. It's just going to be about that command with him. And if he can keep making strides in the right direction with it I can absolutely see what you're talking about you know being a a really solid mid-rotation starter look I don't think Lucas Giolito was as bad as he showed last year with a a 6.13 ERA is he as good as the guy right now who's you know sub 3.5 maybe I, I can see it I can also see him settling more into that 390 to 410 range and being, you know, a fine number four type starter. I think that's probably where I'd lean right now. But I definitely think he's a young pitcher with a chance to improve. And we see a lot pitchers take longer than hitters. We should also look at his distribution of opponents to see if he's just played the Tigers and Royals a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you know, I don't I did not actually look at that and the Indians haven't been so hot this year either. The Twins have, so we'll say, you know, if he, if he faced the Twins multiple times, we'll give him that. And, and again, it's, it's always tough because sometimes you see a promising young player and they're doing really well and you get really excited. Then you have to remind yourself it's been eight starts. There's a lot that of time too. left. That too. So, so far this year, I uh, had a nice opening start against Kansas City, struggled a bit against the Yankees and Mariners, two very good offenses. Was okay against the Red Sox, another good offense, not great. Where he's really ticked up his last three starts, dominated the Indians, and had two good outings against the Blue Jays, two of the not very good offenses in Major League Baseball right now. So that is something to watch moving forward, you're right. That thus far, the Royals, uh, Blue Jays, Indians have been his successes, whereas Yankees, Mariners, Red Sox, there have been more struggles. I was going to say, on the flip side of that, that's why you want to target AL Central pitchers in fantasy. <laughs> yes, that, that could be a good point. Matthew Boyd says hello. Exactly. One other guy who <laughs> was never quite the prospect at the same level as these other guys, but was always kind of an interesting cat just because some of it was the body, some of it was just the way he is, and that's Dan Vogelbach. He was a second-round draft pick known for his enormous power, was traded in a key deal that helped the Cubs win a World Series. And I remember even when he was struggling last year, really the last two years, and, and I talked to the values in the marriage system and said, hey, you know, is he plateauing? Is he, has he become a 4A guy like the Paul McAnulty's of the world? And they're saying, you know, I still think he's more than that because there was still a sense of the power was enormous, the plate discipline was good, look, the defense was never going to be great, but... There was a sense that there was still something there, and he just just need the opportunity. Well, he's received the opportunity this year. Um, he's done very, very well uh, as of this recording. Again, he's OPSing over a thousand. Uh, he's on forty home run pace. Um, obviously, I think there's there's reason to believe that those numbers would be a little rich. That he'll fall off those paces a little bit. 
But even with that, do you believe in Dan Vogelbach? I'm going to level with you. I didn't do my homework on Dan Vogelbach. <laughs> Not quite so, the same guy. Why, why don't you go ahead? Why don't you go first? Well, it's tough. So we talked about all these other guys, right? With Byron Buxton, Yon Moncada, Joey Gallo. Where we can look at what did they do their first two or three years in the majors? What are the tangible changes? Vogelbach never really got consistent playing time. And we've seen a couple of these older first base types who just needed a shot come up and deliver. We saw it with Luke Voigt last year. We're seeing it with Christian Walker this year. It wouldn't shock me if Vogelbach's in the same vein. Now, again, do I really expect him to slug, you know, 629, have an OPS over 1,000, and be, be a, a 45 home run guy? Probably not. But even when he was coming up as a prospect, there was definitely a sense of, hey, this is someone with, who can get you high on base percentages. He's always done a really good job separating balls from strikes. He has big raw power. He progressively was learning to kind of get, into, get to in games, and we saw him really take a step forward last year. It's definitely not uncommon for guys to sometimes wait till 24, 25 to figure that out. I think the combination of his ability to get on base, the fact there's real power in there he's really starting to tap into, mm-hmm. the fact the Mariners have just said, hey, you're our DH, we're not messing around with first base anymore, just focus on hitting, that's your sole job and that's what you're best at. I do think there is something sustainable here in an everyday DH role. Some of this is real, the on base, the power, and... If, if he keeps it up, I mean, we've talked about the Mariners are rebuilding. They're looking for young players to build around. You know, Dan Vogelbach is still 26 years old. He's got a lot of team control left. And not having a hole in your lineup is a nice step to take when, you have, uh, when you're rebuilding. And if he can fill this one for them, it's something worth building with moving forward. What was the trade, the Cubs trade? Mike Montgomery. It was Mike, Mike Montgomery, Montgomery yes. and Paul Blackburn. That was uh, that. The full trade was Vogelbach and Blackburn from the Cubs to the Mariners in exchange for Mike Montgomery and Jordan Preece. Um, plus two for the Paul McAnulty reference as well. <laughs> Angels and Padres guy, come on, that's right in my wheelhouse. I watched um. more Paul McAnulty at bats than I care to remember. Um, so circling back, because I think maybe we're just. We're optimists. We, we enjoy seeing players succeed here at Baseball America. To some degree, I think we said we all have some level of belief in Buxton, Moncada, Gallo, Giolito, and Vogelbach. Mm-hmm. At the very least, performing at a level that you can you know, have them as a consistent everyday presence on your team. Of these five, who do you believe most in and who do you have the most reservations in? Uh, it's Gallo or Moncada for me. Most confidence. Probably least in... Vogelbach or Giolito. How about you? It's tough because I really, truly do believe in the swing that Byron Buxton is showing me now. For the first time in three years, I believe in his swing. And with just everything else he can do, combined with the belief in the swing he's showing right now, Mm -hmm. I'm inclined to say Buxton is is the guy. Um, But I say that again with still some reservation in the sense of maintain it more than these 47, 48 games. The guy I believe the least in, and and I hate saying this way because I do believe to a degree, I want to see Lucas Giolito take the next step with his command before I can 100% buy in on him being what he is showing right now. And even with this, um, the walk rate is still below the major league average. It's still kind of below average control in that sense. 
I, again, I think he can be a good starting pitcher. I don't know if he is what he's showing right now just in terms of you know, what he's looked like these last three starts, where his ERA is relative to the league. I think this is probably a little much, but I still believe in him as a solid big league starter. And what you're saying about Buxton is a reminder to us to, and to everybody listening that, you know, bet on the athlete. They, they are more capable of making the adjustments that you're talking about than, than the players who are less athletic. It is certainly something to always keep in, keep in mind, and it's also good to remember, and, and I know that sometimes it's easy even for us to forget sometimes Sometimes it takes a while. This game is very, very, very hard. The guys who come up and mash right away, even in the age of prospects, you know, making an impact faster than ever, are not the rule. There are guys who take two, three, four years to really figure it all out. And again, these are all very talented players. And if they really have figured it out, it's better for the game because it's more exciting exciting athletes doing exciting things and, and making the game a better place for it. So that's our segment of Believe It or Not. We're introducing a new segment now that personally Now we're getting I to love. the good part is what you're saying. The good part as far as Matt is concerned. I, I, I operate more in the hey what's happening in Major League Baseball side. Matt has become our fantasy expert here at BA. He was always kind of the fantasy expert but is starting to put all his knowledge to print. We're introducing Fantasy Hipster. Matt you originated this term last year. Take us through the backstory. <laughs> well, la last April, I picked up uh, David Bodie in my dynasty league. He's the Cubs uh, second baseman, third baseman. Uh, and I commented on the message board, I'm a David Bodie hipster. He has 0% ownership, and here I am, staking my claim. <laughs> so from that point, I kind of pivoted to fantasy hipster because I thought it had a nice ring to it, you know, kind of being being into a player before anybody else even knows who he is. It's you, li you like him before it's cool. Yeah, exactly. And now David Bodie's a semi-regular for the Cubs and hitting well for the most part. That's sixth when he starts, so you know, he's doing pretty good. So just the, taking that concept and just applying it more generally. All right, Matt. So who are the fantasy... Are they the fantasy hipsters? Are you the fantasy hipster into the, these guys? The, the fantasy player is the fantasy hipster who... You know, all right. They they like these bands before anybody else like. I'm like zero percent hipster. I have friends who are at least part <laughs> hipster. I just, I'm zero percent hipster. What percent hipster are you? Uh, well, I'm old now, so zero. <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes to baseball players, I would say a hundred percent hipster. And you've got the music hipster thing going. I, I put Matt Eddy at fifteen percent hipster as his personality. <laughs> With that, as the fantasy hipster, as we will call you now, who are the players that? you think are cool before anyone else does. Before anybody else. Okay, so my criteria here is mostly low ownership at CBS Sports Fantasy, which is the league that, that I'm in, the Dynasty League. Um, the first pitcher I wanted to mention was uh, Jeff Hoffman of the Rockies. This guy has completely transformed his season. He had three terrible starts at Albuquerque, one of the worst pitcher's parks in the country. With the new AAA ball flying With the out. new AAA ball. He got rocked three times, but in his last three starts, a lot of swinging strikes, a lot of good outcomes. He's now eighth in the Pacific Coast League in swinging strike rate among starters. And I think more importantly, two things. He's changed his repertoire. He's more, he's four seam and curveball almost exclusively now. He's ditched the slider, which was not a good pitch for him. And he's gone, he's throwing more curveballs than even fastballs. Or it's, it's nearly 50-50, I forget which. But the point is, his repertoire is different. And the Rockies demoted Tyler Anderson after a 
terrible month in the major leagues. So there is an opening when the Rockies need a starter. I would bet on it being Hoffman, and I would, uh, especially if the Rockies are on the road, I would recommend picking him up. Speaking of pitchers who take a little while to kind of figure everything out, Jeff Hoffman is another player who, you know, was kind of in the same vein as some of the guys we're talking about now in our previous segment. He had been a top 100 prospect. I remember him showing best, up at the Futures game in San Diego. Best college right-hander in the 2014 draft class. And just has not been able to maintain any sustained success in the major leagues. Uh, walk rate's been high. Strikeout rate's been low. ERA's been really high. Uh, had an extended stint in 2017 that didn't go well, and since then has received two starts in the last two years in the majors. But again, combine that not everyone hits right away, pitchers tend to take longer, and he just turned 26 in January. It's not like this is a 32-year-old out of nowhere. There's still some youth and upside there in the context of major league starters. When he does come back up, what do you think is a reasonable expectation? Um... Well, I wouldn't go wild, but I mean, definitely a a major league caliber starting pitcher who can provide like, you know, I, I would start modest at number four type of output, number four starter type. You know, don't go nuts. He, he does have course field as a disadvantage that all Rockies pitchers face. You know, it's more than just the the hitter friendly conditions. It's you know the altitude is harder to adjust to, recover from, etc. So, yeah, number four type. There's a couple of position players who received their first call-ups this year that you've highlighted as well. Luis Arias with the Twins, Jared Walsh with the Angels, Brian Reynolds with the Pirates, who's a personal favorite of mine. Mm -hmm. I want to start with Arias and Walsh because each of these were players that were in the prospect handbook as top 30 prospects in the, in the teens for their respective teams. These weren't nobodies. Each of them has done something. Walsh's case is really within this past year. Arias, it was in previous years. To show evaluators something that made them think that there was an ability here to potentially be, whether it's an everyday player or a significant contributor. Uh, so these are not guys coming out of nowhere. Uh, they made their major league debuts. What specifically do you see in their profiles that excites you and makes you think they're worth maybe picking up and stashing from a fantasy perspective? Yeah, this is deep league only talk here, like big dynasty roster. This is not like trying to win your league this year without a minor league system. Uh, Jared Walsh, the Angels' first baseman slash left-handed reliever, is a, is a very interesting player because last year in the Cal League, he started to show some home run power, and that's continued to manifest as he's climbed the ladder. But what I like about his profile, his extra base hit distribution, he's continued to hit doubles as he's continued to, to show home run power. And, you know, the difference between a double and a home run is often thin, so I like that he's, he's got that good distribution. And there's an interesting statistic that Rotowire unveiled recently where they have an estimated hard hit rate for minor league batters. Jared Walsh ranks fifth in the minor leagues this year in hard hit rate. Good, good indicators. You know, good minor league numbers, good indicator there. He was three for five, I think, that's in his major league debut, so he can't fail. That's what I'm saying. You know, and to back it up, these are the numbers. Um, scouting reports last year when I was just making calls around the Angels system, everyone was talking about Joe Adele. Everyone was talking about Griffin Canning and Jose Suarez. The other guy who's getting the most buzz from evaluators, both inside and outside the organization, was Jared Walsh. I remember uh, one of the first conversations I had with an opposing evaluator uh, in early June last year. He said, you know, last year saw him, didn't care for him. It was an uphill swing path, all pull, stiff, just, you know, an A-ball corner guy who get picked apart at double A. 
Then I, the scout's words, I went in and saw him this year, and he's crushing the ball to all fields, hitting good velocity, showing a more athletic swing. You know, said, I, you know, I'm not sure what to do with him right now, but he's catching my attention. That was in June of last year. Um, and then starting to talk about, you know, what he had done with some of the uh, hitting coordinators in the Angel system. He really made a lot of adjustments to get more athletic, more rhythmic in the box. Um, there had always been raw power there. It just, as I said, there was some stiff all-pull aspects to him. And then with these adjustments that he made, you saw more athleticism in the swing. You saw more explosiveness. The power started to play in games. Went from high up to AAA. Hit everywhere. And you mentioned that arm, you know, left-handed. He pitched a little bit in college. The Angels have toyed around with the idea of making him a two-way player, but even if the two-way thing never amounts to anything substantial, there really was a sense last year among the scouting community that he could be an everyday first baseman. Now, the, the hit grade was anywhere from 40 to 50, so you're probably still looking 230 to 250, at least in evaluators' eyes. But, I mean, the power, you were getting some pluses. You are getting some 65. So, I mean, if he's an everyday first baseman hitting 245 with you know 30-ish home runs... That's a real valuable contributor, both in fantasy and real life. And he's not just a mop-up pitcher. At least he wasn't used that way at Salt Lake. I mean, the Angels put him in leverage spots. And in AAA, he did have a win and a save in five uh, appearances. What will be interesting to see what the Angels do with him is they obviously have Albert Pujols at first base, locked into a contract for a couple more years. Shohei Otani has the DH role exclusively uh, all of this year, and then into next year he'll have it three out of five days. So how they find playing time for Walsh will be the thing to watch in terms of how much fantasy value he can really deliver. But from a pure player value, there's something here that you mentioned all the metrics are seeing as real. And from the scouting perspective, through la- starting really midway through last year, it was seen as real as well. Yeah, and uh, Luis Arias of the Twins is a high average hitter. You know, you, you, Some scouts would go as high as 7, 70 on his hit ability. The, the problem here is he doesn't steal bases and has not shown a lot of power. So those are the reservations that you want to throw on Arias. He's more pure hitter than all-around dangerous hitter. But he does have some uh, positional flexibility. And, um, you know, his, his ability to hit for average is pretty spotless. And, and so far in the major leagues, he's held in <clears throat> in limited looks. He's held his own against left-handed pitchers. So. Just to uh, give people some background on Arias, he's kind of the, the next in that short, you know, stocky-ish guy who mm-hmm. just keeps getting the bat to the ball. I mean, he's 5'10", 177, uh, left-handed hitter. He's hit for high average everywhere he's been, just has that natural gift to, to get the barrel to the ball. 2017, he missed most of the year with an ACL injury. Came back last year, got up to A, hit well, uh, started really well back at A this year, and the Twins have brought him up. We've seen some of these guys before, the short left-handed hitter profile who can play a little second, play a little third, probably is stretched at shortstop, go a couple different ways. Um, just using another kind of West Coast reference, Carlos Oswahe was a guy like that. He's now playing in Japan. What are the things you see with Arias that maybe are room to believe that he can he can stick? I think he's more like um, Tommy LaStella. You know, you got the pure hit, a little undersized for a corner infielder. Which was also, by the way, the Aswahe comp when he was coming up. <laughs> but yes, continue. I guess there's only so many of these guys, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Lestella's had a... He's having a career year so far, but prior to this year, he was more of a pinch hitter and 
you know, nobody's idea of a starting player. That's but, the downside. You know, but there's also the possibility that guys like Arias and Walsh can show well and get traded into opportunities where they, they can play more regularly. Left-handed hitters who can hit will get an opportunity. It's hugely valuable. It's a scarce resource. And in the case of both Walsh and Arias, both from a statistical perspective and from a scouting perspective, there has been belief that these guys have enough ability to hit at the major league level. Now, to different degrees, and there's different levels of confidence, but there is a strong belief within the evaluator community that there's enough there for them to, to be there in a fairly regular role. Now, we'll see how everything else plays out. Um, roster construction, some things that are out of their control are going to affect how much opportunity they really get. But you're going to bet on the talent, and it's, there does seem to be a general consensus that the talent is there. Now, I won't step on your toes here as you talk about Brian Reynolds. <laughs> I, I like him too, but I mean, I can't. I'm not president of the fan club. So, background here, I, I should add the caveat here, I'm not uh, much of a fantasy player. Uh, I kind of look for players who are good ball players. And You're the professional host, podcast host. I ask you all the fancy questions. So, so when I talk about Brian Reynolds here, it's uh, what I think he can do in real life, which will translate well to fantasy. Um, I first saw Reynolds back in the Cal League in 2017. And what's striking about him is he's a guy who did everything well, consistently got the bat to the ball. And at least at that time, you know, he was a switch hitter. A lot of switch hitters aren't really switch hitters. They are listed as such, and they go up as such. But they're really only effective from one side. Reynolds, at the very least, there's no question he was stronger from one side than the other, but he showed the ability to get the barrel to the ball against both sides, had a good approach against both sides. A lot of evaluators and opposing managers in the league talked about him as, you know, he's good, and I think there's more in there. Mm-hmm. And we started to see that come. He had a hammock injury, which kind of hampered him last year, but now that he's healthy, this is someone that has always hit. Vanderbilt, he hit. Miners, he hit. Small sample size in the majors so far, but so far he's hitting. He's a good athlete, can play you know, all around the outfield. There's a good arm in there. He's a decent runner. A good athlete who has a long track record of hitting, that's someone I'm going to bet on and feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think Reynolds is someone who, who has the ability. Again, is he going to hit 320 over the course of the entire season as he's done his you know, first 20-some-odd games? Probably not. But even if it's 280 with 18 home runs playing good defense for you, making, you know, doing some things for you on the bases, whether that's stolen bases or just good base running. There's a lot to like with Brian Reynolds, and I I have said for a while, I do think he will have a better career when we look back on it than a lot of other guys who are are higher up. Uh, And for background, peeling back the curtain here, uh, back to that 2017 Cal League top prospects list, I, uh, I had Brian Reynolds up pretty high, and John Manuel and Matt Eddy had had me push him down, and we will see how it all shakes out. And I understood why, and, and I think there was, there were some managers who also agree that he should be lower than some of the other guys on that list. Um, but again, he's just the type of player to me that is going to outperform some other guys who have this enormous tool but have other major deficiencies in their game that don't allow them to ever be consistent enough. I think he'll be consistent enough to be a solid, everyday player in the majors. Yeah, Reynolds first kind of popped up when he got off to such a great start at Indianapolis this year. It's like that, that's when I started to take note. Oh wait, wait, does that make me his fancy hipster? Because oh, I liked wait. him in San Jose oh, before wait. that. <laughs> Must be. 
<laughs> he was, uh, for background, he was uh, one of the top prospects the Giants traded for Andrew McCutcheon. They <laughs> traded him, Kyle Crick, and international bonus money uh, to the Pirates uh, January of last year. And obviously McCutcheon has moved on. The Giants need outfielders, and Brian Reynolds is doing well in Pittsburgh. And as the Giants cycle through their 18th outfielder in 20-some-odd <laughs> games, or, that's not the official number. That's just what it feels like. Uh, and more in passing, I'll just mention the Cardinals. Dylan Carlson is, I think, a... An interesting prospect, uh, not so far removed from the Brian Reynolds class of player, switch hitting outfielder with a, a wide skill set, maybe not one tool that will just grab you. I do the Cardinals list for us here at Baseball America, and internally, the Cardinals, who we need to make note, have a very strong track record of accurately evaluating their own talent. They have been very, very high on him for a while, uh, and I'm not just talking about the classic, oh, just pumping their own guys up. Like People within their organization who don't BS you and will tell you, hey, this player isn't really that good or this player needs to do this better, pretty universally have liked this guy. And when you looked at the raw numbers last year, it didn't jump out at you. But you looked at he was one of the youngest players in the Florida State League. And yeah. again, if you don't know the context of the Florida State League, he was 40, I think it was 40 OPS points higher than the league average as one of the league's youngest players. Mm -hmm. So you saw, there's always been a sense of, of he's really advanced. His father is a, is a famed high school baseball coach in Northern California. Has produced a lot of big leaguers out of Elk Grove High. Mm. Um, he just has a great feel for the game. He's always had that maturity about him where you had a reasonable expectation he was going to get the most out of everything he had and, and play the game, you know in a smart way and apply his tools intelligently. Um, and we're starting to see, he's, he's still young, he's only 20, he's in double A, and now the physicality's starting to come into play, he's growing into his power. There is, again, he's 20, he's in double A, there's a lot of room for growth, there's also paths for things to go sideways, so there's by no means a, a guaranteed, hey, you know, absolute future all-star, but there's a lot of things to like, and, and I do think that combined with, again, the numbers you're talking about, the performance he's putting up at AA, the consistently good scouting reports, and even those who are a little lower on Carlson still saw him as a major leaguer. It was just, okay, is he a major leaguer in that fourth outfielder frame, or is he an everyday starter who's potentially even an above-average everyday starter? That was the debate. No one looked at him and said, eh, he's not a guy. Everyone thought he was a guy to a degree. And I think we're just continuing to see the growth. And, and like you mentioned, from both that traditional scouting perspective through the more numbers-based perspective, everything's starting to line up nicely for him. Yeah, concur. So how many of these guys do you have on your teams? All of them. I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this, is, this was the product launch. You know, we'll, we'll challenge ourselves outside the box next time. Absolutely. Next uh, time on Fantasy Hipster. There we go. Well, this has been another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, it's always a pleasure to have Matt Eddy on. We will try and make it happen more often for uh, all the best advice about both real world and fantasy baseball. For Matt, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening, everybody. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. 
You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.